we're going to jump in, um, and we're going to we're going to read a little bit in Mark 10, and I'm going to read something in Mark's uh, Matthew 6. But if you haven't been around, we've been in this series called "I Have Decided," and it's been all about the spiritual disciplines. Um, that is, these things that we would choose to, to practice or do in our faith that would help us either grow closer in our relationship with God or that they would be things that we would do out of response to our relationship with God. And there's these, there are these, these actions, typically, these choices that we can make. Like if you want to get strong and you want to have muscles, the action or choice that you would make is that maybe you would go to the gym. That's a, that's a discipline that you might choose if you want to be in shape. If you want to lose some weight, you might make the choice, as some amazing people have that I'm looking at right now, to, to change the way that you eat. That's a choice. That's a practice that you might choose to do. Sometimes it's adding something to your life. Sometimes it's taking something away from your life. But there's choices that we make in order to help us get to a place that we want to be. And in the case of the spiritual disciplines, the choice is always not to accomplish the thing that we're talking about, but it's to use the thing that we're talking about in order to accomplish the true goal, which is getting closer to God, to getting closer to his heart and to serving him. So, every sermon thus far has been about one or two of the spiritual disciplines, and that is going to be the case tonight. But in, instead of doing it the way that I would normally do it, I'm not going to tell you what really the spiritual disciplines, there's two of them, what they are until the end. I'd rather just preach this message straight from the word of God and just let the, the message come out of me and then, and then you'll see how it ties to the specific uh, spiritual disciplines. Is that okay? Yeah. Awesome. Then let's read together in Mark 10, starting in verse 17. Your subtitle probably says the rich young ruler or the rich young man. If you've been in church for any amount of time, you've probably heard this story before, but I want to invite you to tune your ears closely because we're going to dive in together uh, and look at what it is that God's heart is for humanity in these few short verses that we're going to look at together. And this is what it says, Mark 10, verse 17. As he was setting out on his journey, he being Jesus, he's leaving a place, headed to another place like he did so often, says this, as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up to him and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? It's a good question. If you've never asked that question, if you've never asked the deeper questions of life, the immaterial questions of life, then tonight will be a good night to start asking. He says, he runs to him and he falls on his knees before him and he says, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? I just love how Jesus answers questions with questions. Why do you call me good? Nobody's good except for God alone. You know the commandments. Do not murder. Do not commit adultery. Do not steal. Do not bear false witness. Do not defraud. Honor your father and mother. And he said to him, Teacher, all of these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. And you will have treasure in heaven and come and follow me. Disheartened by the saying, he went away sorrowful for he had great possessions. 
And then one more scripture for you real quick. In Matthew 6, verse 33, it says, But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all of these other things will be added to you. Seek first the kingdom of God, and everything else that you need will be given to you. The title of this message tonight is First Things First. First Things First. Why don't we pray together and ask that if the Spirit of God would have uh, something that he would desire for us to seek first, that our heart and our life would line up with that. Is that a good prayer? Let's pray that together. Lord, we recognize that you're in this place, and we thank you for it. We thank you that you're not a distant God, that you're not a, a far-off deity that, um, that is removed from our everyday life, but that you are here with us right now. You're here with us when we leave. You're with us when we're doing dishes and when we're at work and when we're changing diapers. And, but right now, in the midst of this time and this space, as your people have gathered, gathered together, we ask together, Lord, that as, as your word is spoken, that you would empower me to speak your thoughts, your words, your heart to us tonight that Holy Spirit, you would speak through me to each of us and that you would change us in a way that only you can, that we would be the people that you desire that we would be and that we would reflect who you are to the world around us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Did you know that the average one of you is gonna die at 78.6 years old? Is anybody older than that in here? JR, you're above average, my friend. Come on. But the average one of you is going to die at 78.6 years old. That's a sobering thought, isn't it? That means that you have about 28,000 days or so on this earth. You have 688,000 hours. You have 41 million minutes and two and a half trillion seconds. You've lived longer than two and a half trillion seconds. It's awesome. <laughs> Did you know that the average one of you, of those two and a half trillion seconds, of those 78.6 years, the average one of you will spend about 25 years of your life sleeping? You will. The average one of you will spend about 10.3 years of your life working. The average one of you will spend 9.1 years watching TV, 10 years working, 9 years watching TV. The stats are still coming in as far as how long we're going to spend on our cell phones, but it's growing. In fact, in fact, the average one of you checks your cell phone 110 times a day. 110 times a day, which means that the average one of you is going to check your phone about 4.5 times during the duration of this sermon. <laughs> so, if you do check it, share the message on Facebook. Did you know that most of you will check your cell phone when you're on the body? You washed your hands, I know, but did you wash your screen? It's, it's gross. You know the average woman? (laughs) 
The average woman in here will spend one full year of your life looking at your closet, deciding what you're going to wear. It's true. One full year of your life looking at your closet. And the average man is going to spend one full year of your life looking at women. It's true. Probably more for some of you. Oh, man. We got 78 years of life to live. Where do we spend our time? Money. Did you know? I looked this up. There's some pretty fascinating websites out there. If you just type into Google, how much money do I make compared to the rest of the world? There's a number of websites that come up, and they tell you exactly where you land. Did you know that the average one of you lands between the top 2 and 5% of the wealthiest people on this planet? The average one of you. And how many of us have said, well, I'm poor. I have nothing. I'm broke. I'm, I'm, we're starving. I, I can't make it. The average one of you is within the top five wealthiest people on this whole planet. I did the math with Idaho State minimum wage, if you're thinking, well, I only make minimum wage. If you make minimum wage in the state of Idaho and you work 40 hours a week, you are still within the top 11% of the wealthiest people on the planet. It's amazing. We're so wealthy that the average one of you has 300,000 items in your home. Many of you, in fact, have so many items that they're overflowing into your garage and now you park your car in the driveway instead of the garage that God gave you. In fact, some of you have so many possessions that your garage wasn't enough and your shed wasn't enough that $36 billion a year in America is spent on storage units. $36 billion. You know that America has 3% of the world's children, and yet we have 40% of the world's toys? In fact, the average child has 280 toys available to them at all time. We've made it, you guys. The American dream. We've made it. Surely, we have everything we need. Surely our wealth and our freedom and the time that we have and the, the resources that are available to us and the material goods that, that we so much enjoy, surely all of those things have left us in a place in life where we are truly content and happy. Isn't it true? It's not fully true. And the reason that it's not fully true uh, really in the scheme of what really matters, not even to mention just this life and whether we're content in just this life, but the reason why no matter how wealthy you are, even if you're in the top 1% of the 1%, no matter what you have, materially speaking, you will never truly or fully be satisfied in this life. The reason for that is because you are not created to be fully satisfied in this life. You are created for something more. You see, the reason why you find yourself looking for something greater is the same reason that this young man found himself running up to Jesus and asking him about something more. Is because no matter what you have on this planet, the material things that you own and the wealth that you have and all the freedom and time that might be allotted to you is not enough because this life is not just about what is temporal. This life is truly about what is eternal. Eternal. This is what would bring people like you, I would guess, to a room like this on a Saturday night. 
is because I know that most of you already have recognized the need that is in your soul for something more. That's why you're here. You recognize that your life is not all about just this life. You recognize that your life is about something eternal. It's about something greater. It's about something bigger. It's about something outside of just you. And this is the scenario that this rich young man finds himself in. We, we see from the context that he was wealthy. We see that he was young. And we see from some places that he appears to be some sort of ruler or some sort of young person in authority. But other than that, there's not a whole lot that's said about him. We just know that there was something going on inside of him, something that amidst, even though he was a wealthy person, even though when it comes to the world and what was going on for him, he had a lot going for him. There was something in him that led him to run up to this man, Jesus, while he was on his way outside of the city, fall to his knees before him and say, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I wonder if you've found yourself in that place. I love his address to him. He starts by saying, good teacher. There's something that he recognized in Jesus. There's something that he recognized. Maybe it was because he had had firsthand experience with Jesus. Maybe he had been in the crowd watching him uh, perform miracles from afar. Maybe he had, he had just heard about him. His friends had told him, uh, and he, he traveled a long distance to get to him. One way or another, he knew that there was something good about this man, and he knew that even if it was going to be embarrassing, even if he had to run to get to him, even if he had to fall down his knees in humility, he would go to this man, Jesus, because this man had something that was good. And so he falls before him and he, he addresses him in the proper way. Good teacher. Now, this is sort of a term of praise. It's a, this, is a, this is the proper address that you should come to the Son of God with. A recognition of honor to some degree or another. Good teacher. But you know, sometimes in life, uh, we approach people and we make these statements of honor but sometimes we do it for a different reason let me put it like this sometimes my seven-year-old will just run up to me and just say daddy I love you I just love you daddy or my four-year-old will say I just want to cuddle with you I just love you I just love you I love you and there's no agenda, there's no request for candy or for the skating rink or for whatever it is that they want to do. There's just this statement of adoration. And those are the most beautiful moments in our relationship because they're pure, because there's not an ulterior motive, because there's just a statement of their love for me and we can have this moment together. But there's other times in life, you may have experienced them when somebody offers this, this compliment, but you just feel like there's something more. Like when your 13-year-old son comes home and says, Dad, you were an amazing basketball player when you were younger, weren't you? I heard that you were just so good. Uh-huh. And? Well, there's this basketball camp. It costs $600. Would you pay for it? Because I want to be good like you. 
I just want to be as good as you, Dad. You know, there's, there's compliments that we get in life sometimes that have, that have something else connected with them. And, and I don't know exactly what this rich young ruler's motive was, but he approaches Jesus and he says, good teacher. That's a, that's a statement of praise. And then he goes on to say, what must I do? to inherit eternal life. What must I do? You know, when we approach God, I think the best place that we can be in is a place that praises without prerequisite for return. It's a place that says, God, you're good, and it has nothing to do with whether what, what I'm going to ask of you next. It has nothing to do with what, what you might be able to give me or do for me in life. I'm going to offer you my praise no matter what's coming my way. And I don't know exactly his motive, but we know his words, good teacher. What must I do to inherit eternal life? He had a desire for something. I'm, I'm gonna give him the benefit of the doubt and trust that his desire was, was a pure desire, a desire that said, God, whatever it is that you have for me after this life, I want a part of it, I want a piece of it. So good teacher, would you reveal to me what is it that I need to inherit the eternal life that you promise. And then Jesus does what he often does, and he answers a question with a question. In fact, I noticed this for the first time ever in reading this passage, studying this passage. What it is that the, the ruler thought that he knew Jesus' questions, and what it is that the ruler was asking, Jesus treats him like he already knows. You see, what he says, what he declares is, you're a good teacher. That's a declaration of fact. And that declaration of fact is the very thing that Jesus questions, why do you call me good? And then the question that he asks, how do I inherit eternal life? Jesus treats as if he already knew the answer to it. Well, you know the commandments, you already know them. You know, Jesus, we see this time and time again, he asks the question back to the questioner, and there's a reason for it. It's not just because he likes to be annoying, although I kind of think he does. Hey, Jesus, should we pay taxes? Well, whose face is on the coin? Who, who's, whose face is on the coin? Hey, Jesus, there's a storm. You're sleeping in the boat. Don't you care if we drown? Why, why are you so fearful? Hey, Jesus, why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders? It's a good question. Why do you forsake, forsake the command of God for the sake of your tradition? These are the questions that Jesus asked when he was supposed to be answering questions. It's kind of annoying. <laughs> Jesus, just tell me, are you the king of the Jews? Is it you that asked me that question or did somebody tell you to ask me that? He asks questions. The reason that he asks questions is because when you give an answer to somebody who does not love truth, their ability to receive the answer is far less. You can't receive an answer if you have no appreciation for the truth that's going to come your way. Sometimes people in this life ask questions and they don't really actually want to know what the answer is. They just want to put you on the spot and trap you. And so Jesus invariably questions the questioner because he wants to put them on, he wants to question their motivation and their presupposition from which they're even approaching him in the first place. It's like when your daughter comes home from school and says, mom and dad, I have something to tell you, but if I tell you, do you promise that you won't hate me? 
Okay, let's rewind a little bit and let me address your question. Why is it that you would assume that there's anything that you could do to get me to hate you? Let's address that first and then you could go ahead and tell me. There are questions that people ask him that they don't actually want to know the answer to. They just want him to give them the answer that they've already predetermined in their mind. I wonder if you ever do this. I wonder if I ever do this. Pastor says, hey, we're going to receive a special offering. Would you just pray about it? Hey, Lord, I'd really like to give $100. Is that cool? Cool. Instead of, Holy Spirit, whatever it is that you want me to give, would you just give me the number? Whatever it is. So we ask these questions sometimes, and we have a false motive. And, and I don't know what his motive was, but he said, good teacher, a, a term of praise, a term of honor. And he says, what must I do? It seems like he just wants more. He wants more. What must I do to inherit eternal life? You know, why don't we come to God and say, good teacher, you are worthy of all my praise. You are greatly to be praised. Oh, God of the universe, what must I do in order that you would inherit what it is that you want? Forsaking my desires, what must I do in order for you to get what you want, God? What must I do in order for me to pick up my cross and follow you and accomplish what you want? What must I do to see your kingdom built on this planet? Instead, we ask, what must I do to get what I want? Now, it's not all bad. Eternal life is a good thing. You should desire it, and you should, you should wonder how to get it. But what I'm trying to do is just invite you to consider the, own, the motivation of your heart when you approach God over anything. When you ask God a question and you address him as the good and holy God that he is, is it from the position of true faith saying, whatever it is that you answer me, I believe that it's not only good, but it's also good for me. When, did you catch that? When you ask God a question, and you acknowledge him for who he is, you acknowledge him as good, do you trust that when he answers your question, that his answer, whatever it is, is not only a good answer, but also good for you? Because this guy asked Jesus a question, what must I do? And he said, well, you already know what to do. He said, you know the commandments, you already know them. Do this, this, and this, and this, and this. Which, if you're like a New Testament Christian like we are, his answer's a little weird, isn't it? Have you ever noticed that? His answer's a little unique. Like, Jesus, the Son of God, came to preach the message that it's all about faith, not works. It's all about believing in me, not what you could do. And his answer to this guy is, go and do these six out of the 613 commandments. Isn't that a little weird? It seems a little contradictory to actually what his message is. I think it's not. Here's the reason why. Let's just assume for a moment that this ruler 
who says I've followed all these, even though many sermons could be preached on how he was lying or deceived or whatever it is. But let's just assume that he was actually good enough to have followed these commandments. The point that Jesus is making is this. It's not really the fact that you're following all these commandments that are gonna get you eternal life because you're telling me that you do and we both know that you're here right now because you know you have not yet received it. We both know that you came to me recognizing that you're lacking something in your soul. And so even as I'm gonna tell you that what you need to do is these commandments, we both already know that that's not what's gonna get it for you. So are you ready to hear what you really need? He's setting them up. And so he says this, there's one thing that you lack, that you would sell everything that you have and give it to the poor. And then you'll have treasures in heaven. Presumably then, you will have eternal life. One thing that you lack. You probably heard a message preached on this before. The one thing you lack. You need to sell everything. You know, we've heard, we've heard passionate preachers, passionate Jesus followers preach this message of asceticism and poverty and say, Jesus says it clearly. If you have wealth, you need to give it all away. It's clear as day. It's right there in the word. You need to sell everything that you have. You need to give all your money away because that is the one issue that Jesus has with this person. And so that's the one issue that he has with you. If you have money, then you're in big trouble. You better give it away. You better sell it all. You better give to the poor and you better... Whereas there's other people that would take the opposite stance because they would say, it's obviously not a real commandment. I mean, Jesus wouldn't ask us really to, you know. So he didn't really mean it clearly. So just that's just one of the things he just said. It's okay. You, it's totally fine. And all of the attention, either way, is placed on the man's wealth. Which the truth is, his wealth is important, but his wealth is not the one thing. Have you ever thought that, that the one thing that Jesus is talking about is his wealth? He says, you lack one thing. You lack one thing. Go and sell everything that you have and give to the poor. That's not the one thing. The one thing is what comes next. You lack one thing, one thing that you don't yet have because what he's asking him to do is a prerequisite for the one thing. What he's asking him to do is to get rid of the things that is stopping him from the one thing. The one thing that he's lacking is that he's not following Jesus. Oh, you need to get this. He says, you're lacking one thing. Namely, you're not following me. What I know, because I'm the God of the universe, is that what's stopping you from the, from the one thing that really matters, following me, is your wealth. I've identified in you that your wealth is stopping you from the one thing that really matters, that's following me. And so what I'm asking you to do is to get rid of that stuff that is stopping you from the one thing. It's, the money is not the one thing. The money is not the point. You can have a whole lot of money and follow Jesus. You can have nothing and still not follow Jesus. It's not about the wealth or the lack of wealth. It's about anything in your life that is stopping you from the one most important thing that he's going to ask you to give it up for him. Because there's one thing in life that's important. It's following him. That's the one thing. If you come to, to God with a true heart, 
pure motive. God, is there anything in my life that I need to, that you are asking me to walk away from? Is there anything that's separating me from you? Is there anything that I need to give up in order to walk in the, the relationship and the life that you have for me? What is it, God? His answer to you might not be that answer that he gave to him. It's not all about the money. It's about whatever it is that is stopping you from the one thing. And for you, it might not be money. It might be the anger that you hold in your heart. It might be the unforgiveness that you have. It might be pride in your own ability to work, your own ability to accomplish, your own ability to have a name for yourself. It might be the pride that says when there's an altar call, I'm gonna stay right in my seat instead of walking forward because I don't want anybody to know that that preacher's talking about me. Is there anything in your life that is stopping you from the one thing which is truly wholeheartedly following Jesus? Apparently for this young person, that answer that came from a, a good teacher was not, for him, a good response. He didn't like that answer. And so the scripture tells us, and this is the last that we'll see from this person, that he walked away disheartened because he had many possessions. And the result of the scenario comes from the same exact thing that Jesus saw in him, which was that he was holding on too tightly to his stuff. It's amazing to me how we can come to God singing worship songs and proclaiming, God, you're good. God, you're good. You're amazing. You, all of your ways are good. But then the first moment that he gives us a commandment that we don't like, we act like his word to us is somehow not good. God, I want a healthy marriage. I want to be pure. Okay, stop looking at the computer screen then. Let me just say this. It is a possibility for you to get away from sexual immorality. Some of you, I think, myself included at times in my life, would say, well, the culture we live in, it's just too hard. Well, why do you need an iPhone? Why not just throw it against the wall and get a flip phone? We keep coming to the altar confessing and asking God to do what he'll never do for us. When we pray, we need to ask God to do what only he can do. That is the supernatural things. And then we need to be obedient to do the things that he asks us to do that he won't. He says, I'm going to purify your heart and your mind from those images that you've seen. What I'm asking you do is to drop kick your computer out the window. And he ain't going to do it for you. He's not going to. 
Do you see what I'm saying? It's not just about this issue. I speak to people that are, God, deliver me from this drug addiction. Well, do you have any in your house? Do you have any pipes in your house? Yes, I do. And what well, then destroy them, flush it, get move houses. God, I want to be a better I want to I want to be a better person, but all my friend group is leading me down the wrong path. Well, do you need to give up your friend group? He's asking you to make that move. He's not gonna, he's not gonna kill all your friends or move them out of the state. He's gonna ask you to move yourself to another location. I mean, he's gonna do what he's gonna do. The, the things that only he could do are the things that we pray for. And sometimes he asks us to do something. You see, it's both. And I just feel like sometimes we're unwilling to do what he asks us to do, even though we desperately pray for him to do his part. Man, I gotta move on. I have two minutes left in my sermon to tell you really the spiritual disciplines. Let me just just remind you of this passage one more time. That we would seek first his kingdom and that everything else in this life and the next life that we need, that we want, that we truly desire will be given to us. Now, don't mishear me. When I say you'll get everything you want, what I don't mean is actually everything that you think you want. This is not a message of me saying, follow God and you get everything you want. What I'm saying is this. Sometimes what we think we want is not actually what we really want. Only God knows what we truly want. And sometimes we forsake the important things for the immediate things. Sometimes we forsake what it is that we really want to get what we think we want. And when we seek first his kingdom, when we follow him first, we get what we always wanted, but sometimes what we never knew about. Because in the presence of God is the fullness of life. It's the fullness of joy. When you truly have relationship and presence with God, the other things in your world become so much less important that you don't need to focus on them. The two disciplines that I'm actually supposed to be preaching on today are simplicity and solitude. Simplicity and solitude. It's quite a lot, actually, to try and preach on in one sermon, and it's also a lot to preach on in two minutes. <laughs> but I felt compelled to just preach this message because this text, God's Word, really sets up for us the model through which we would approach these two disciplines. And if you don't, if you don't understand what these two disciplines are, to put it simply, the discipline of simplicity would be the practice of intentionally making the objects in your life, whether it's money or possessions or things that you have, it's the practice of intentionally doing what you need to do to make them less important to your spirit. It's not necessarily a commandment to get rid of everything you have. It's a commandment to make sure that whatever you have, however much or little of it, is in proper priority and proper perspective to God and his kingdom. 
You see, you could be, you could be very poor and without much, but your mind and your spirit could be constantly thinking about stuff. Do you know what I'm saying? Just because you're poor doesn't mean that you're not thinking about money. In fact, quite the opposite. Sometimes the poorest of people are the ones that are constantly thinking about money because it's, it's a need that they have. It's not only the rich that struggle sometimes with this thought of being consumed with their wealth. So the, 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 the practice of simplicity would be to intentionally put yourself in a position where if you have stuff, it's you that has stuff, not the stuff that has you, right? So with our interns, we go through this, and when we go through the chapter on simplicity, we have a simple challenge, and you could choose to take this or not. Uh, you know, there's no legalism here, but this is the challenge that they're gonna receive this week, and that's this. Choose something that you own right now that you don't wanna give away and give it away. When you approach a challenge like that, it, and you approach it genuinely, it starts to speak to you where your soul's really at. I'll confess this to you. Another thing that we do is I say, pull out a piece of paper and a pen, and I want you to write down every single thing that you own that you don't want to give away. And I'm humbled to say that my list is very, very long. And I'm humbled to say that I've had interns in the past that have had maybe one or two things on their list that they wanted to keep, one of them being their toothbrush. We've had a former intern that I look up to, a young man that I look up to because I believe there is literally nothing that he owns that he would not open-handedly give away. That is the definition of somebody who lives in simplicity. Nothing in this life owns him. He has stuff, but it doesn't have him. What Jesus is really saying to this person is, if your stuff is owning you, and it's stopping you from letting me own you, then I'm asking you to give it up. Is there anything in your life or multiple things in your life? Now, I'm not asking you to give away your house and give away your car and give away your TV and your computer and your, all these things. I'm not asking you to do that. What I'm asking you to do along with me is that we could practice. That we practice. Same way I'm not gonna ask you to come to my gym and lift 800 pounds. No, no, let's just start somewhere. Can we, can we at least start somewhere? Can we practice this week giving things away? It's amazing what happens inside of you when you don't want to give something away and that's the thing that you give away. It's easy to give away things you don't care about. Here, that's called a white elephant gift exchange, okay? That's not, that's not what Jesus is asking us to do. We say this right here, a sacrifice isn't a sacrifice unless it's a sacrifice. I just want to challenge you to sacrifice something for the sake of God. And by the way, the secondhand benefit of that is that you're blessing somebody else. And then again, in negative one minute of time, um, solitude. Multiples of messages could be preached on solitude. And I'm sorry that I didn't give it more time, but if you've never practiced solitude, it's sort of like simplicity and that simplicity is practicing um, sort of ridding yourself of stuff having you. Solitude is the practice of ridding yourself of the things in life that consume your time. 
and your attention and your focus. It's intentionally putting yourself in a place where you're alone with God. And in the same way that just because you might be poor doesn't mean you're actually practicing simplicity. Similarly, just because you're alone does not mean that you're practicing solitude with God. Just because you're lonely doesn't mean you're practicing solitude. But something happens when your intention, the intent of your heart is I'm gonna go somewhere and I'm gonna leave the cell phone behind and I'm gonna leave the work behind and I'm gonna go with just me, the Holy Spirit and my Bible and I'm gonna give God eight hours. Four hours? Two hours? Something. Jesus did 40 days. Moses did 80 days. Again, the point is not for me to tell you exactly what to do. The point is that I would encourage you, would you consider taking these two things that I'm trying to put in your hands, simplicity and solitude, and would you intend in your heart to try and practice this week? I truly believe that what God will do for you is gonna be beautiful and refreshing and great. Because when we can learn to put aside the stuff that sometimes has us and the things that we sometimes are so consumed with with our time, and we separate ourselves from those things and we just offer to God what we are, he's freed to work in a way in us that we haven't experienced before. Somebody said, if you want God to do in you what he's never done, then you need to not do what you've always done. Right? Insanity is doing the same thing over and over, expecting a different result. If we wanna trust God that he's gonna do something fresh and revive our spirit and do something new in this world, then we need to begin to do things that we haven't done before in order to experience things we haven't experienced before. In all of the disciplines, the one thing that God wants for us, rather from us, is us. Not the practice, it's us. 